Hello, I'm Toby Haydock. Welcome to regular Who's Round listeners and to you fly-by-night lot who only listen to the Russell T Davis ones. I mean, he's very good, but come on, I've interviewed a Ford. Peter Purvis, and then she comes back for Smith and Jones. Or Colin Baker, even, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, a Capaldi. A Capaldi. Oh, it's just happening all the time. Oh, I know, I know. Um, and Smith and Jones, uh, where you pick up a hospital, plonk it on the moon, and bring in the slow-mo mofos, the, uh, <laughs> the jadoon. Only on Doctor Who. It's one of those things <laughs> you go, hospital on the moon with rhinos. Why am I complaining about the Web of Fear and its web guns? Because it's... It's that mad, isn't it? What have rhinos got to do with hospitals? And Well, I'll tell you what rhinos got to do with hospitals. Rhinos are big and slow. And the police, it's funny. It's a funny bit of world building that. It's like, it's, it's, when the script's written, it looks kind of easy, but it's a lot of hard work getting there, which is the the a, the, the jadoon, the, the story element that is the jadoon, that has to work slowly. In order for the plot to work, in order for Florence Finnegan to get away with it, in order for the doctor to run around, in order for Martha to gain centre stage, which is the most important thing, you have to come up against a very slow alien. They got to all this bother of moving a hospital to the moon. They're very powerful. Why don't they just find that shapeshifter immediately? So that then starts to create the rules. You say, right, they're very rule-bound. Actually, they're going to take time. They're going to process everyone in that hospital. And they've actually they moved the hospital to the moon kind of on a technicality. They're not allowed into that airspace sort of stuff. And So you think, well, that's interesting. They're becoming very hidebound. They're becoming very policeman-like. And then that's funnier if you then make them stupid policemen. That's kind of... Because they're not the, th- the threat. Florence is the nasty threat. These people aren't actually that. They kill people, but they're not actually that bad. So it's, it's a nice example of that, of how if you attend to the story and tell it properly, it creates itself. Do you know what I mean? It's like it becomes a story in which only rhino policemen could ever fit. It's not like you invent them first. It's not like you go, ah, oh, rhino policemen. Why would you do that? But when you look at the story and develop it and let it sort of blossom for want of a better word I've never said that about a story before blossom it's not working let a story develop we'll say that then it creates the jadoon I like that it's one of my favourite things about it Singleton Hospital in Swansea they run up and down well and you mentioned you mentioned it already in a breath that the Shakespeare Code was a script but there's a line that was lost from the Shakespeare Code about oh. um, can the owner of the horse the speckled horse please move oh is which, there? I, which, which <laughs> I thought was a lovely idea is that got, did we lose it in the commentary or something oh wow probably that there was an out an was someone on stage the I, I, like yeah. or someone <laughs> damn but why what, did we lose a gag where I'll did you it. get that because I remember when it was, it was oh there's going to be a Shakespeare and I thought oh which which classical actor will they get to play Shakespeare because yeah, be yeah, yeah. romantic they'll get a young romantic lead and it's Liam Gallagher Played by yes. Kev from Shameless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it absolutely works. Yeah. So where did that idea of Shakespeare being the sort of rock and roll start? Do you know, from? I wish I could. It's one of those invisible bits of... I mean, obviously Andy Pryor's casting, but you take that from a script. With me. I can't remember who or how that came up with, except I do remember sitting there going, we don't want some posh actor. When you look at someone like Shakespeare in Love, there's kind of like your posh, tough Shakespeare that isn't that I find a little bit cold. Oh, I find it a little bit obvious. It's like, yes, he can run around going, forsooth, and, and be posh. It's like, and I don't believe he was like that. I think, I think you're always trying to sort of say, actually, 
Dickens had a lot of bottle and a lot of gall and a, a bad love life at home. And Queen Victoria can pick up a gun. And Baron Tomopdor really fell in love, not just not just not just was mistress. You're always trying to find something real about them. So it's like if you're good with words, you only become Shakespeare not by sitting underneath a willow tree writing away with a feather it's you you become Shakespeare by falling in love and by drinking and by having women and affairs and falling in love and breaking your heart and watching other people falling in love and breaking their heart and we do actually write him massively intelligent I kind of get lost in the Liam Gallagher side of it because actually he's the one person ever who just looks at the doctor and kind of knows who the doctor is kind of works him out studies him for a bit gets him immediately because that is surely what Shakespeare is like any good writer simply understands human nature. That's the only talent a writer ever needs to have. They don't need to know A stories and B stories and three-act structures and, and, and the history of the original version of The Tempest and, and stuff like that. They just need to know why people do what they do. And that's why Shakespeare's plays are still performed, because everything Rosalind says in that forest is still true. Men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them, but not for love. The most cynical and most brilliant and true line ever written. And to have written that Shakespeare was just full of salt and sweat and beer and dirt and ordinary people. That's what he was. So um, so I think a lot of that was for me, actually. I've got to be honest. And so I, think, I think Gareth worked brilliantly on that, but I think there would have been pressures initially to sort of say he was a posher Shakespeare. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe a lot of that was Gareth, because he's brilliant at that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, again, I'm kind of, the more you talk through the choices you get, you arrive at the only one that makes sense for the story. And that's who Shakespeare is in the end. That's who he is. He must have been. He must have been like that. He must have been that down to earth. He must have been that much of a laugh. He's writing comedies. Writing great big knockabout comedies with clowns and things like that. And tragedies. It's like, must have been. And how do you manage your writers when you're saying, because you say, some of this came from me, some of this came from them. You know, again, it goes back to that, oh, everything's marvellous, Russell T. Davis, but you are an executive producer of a television programme and the buck stops with you. Yes, yes, yes. So is there a firmness to you? Oh, there is. There were a couple of writers who wouldn't speak to me for about a couple of years, I think. I didn't notice. I was so busy. Juliet's tell me afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I think two years passed. I was like, oh, right. (laughs) I hadn't noticed. Um, And at the same time, great friends. I love working with Mark, with Gareth, with... I think writers all working together all on the same side, basically. It's like things got to go very wrong. Um, well, it can happen. Of course it can happen because it's a temperamental sort of job as well. I suspect I was kind of... I'm, I think, to be honest, I think I'm a brilliant script editor. Frankly, absolutely brilliant. I'm great to go through scripts and working out what works, what doesn't. There's never a problem in the script I can't find a solution for. And that's a fact. It's like every time you get stuck, Frankly, I come up with an answer. I would. I was absolute strength of mine. That's why no matter how busy we were, we just make sure that I went to the script meetings because that's where I was at my best. Schedule, budgets, filming, leave that to Julian Phil, that's all a nightmare. Going through 58 pages of a script, I can make it work. Not immediately, but I can do it. So it's great. I think I'm probably lovely to work with and a nightmare to work with. I think um, I know what it's like to be a writer, so I'm very sympathetic to everything they go through and how hard they've worked equally because I know what everything they've been through and how hard they've worked I'm a nightmare because I know when something's been written at two o'clock in the morning I know when they haven't looked at something on page two that contradicts what's on page 75 I know I just know but did you ever have anyone 
when you presented a script to whomever, whichever department, say, uh, come on, this, was there ever a bit where somebody pushed you and got a better result? All the time. Yeah, yeah, every single one of my scripts. I know that's kind of like a myth that like, my scripts are never edited. All my scripts go past uh, Phil and Julie and the whole team. If, you know, if Louise on costume comes to me with a note saying, it'd be better if they do this. I do that gladly, and you know, they go to all the scripts went to Jane Tranter in London. You don't transmit stuff on that budget without being having every line filleted and justified and 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 made to sing for. You've got to tap dance and earn your living and do it. So every single bit, yeah. So, and if so I don't like a note, then I absolutely say no to it. But I've got the experience to know when I should do that now. So what was the script of yours then that metamorphosed the most as a result of outside influence? Then mm, so. that's interesting because it feels like. Was that they all did in a way, and I can remember where they. St I can remember, you know, that that start of Tottenham Claw, which then became a very, very different thing. Um, I suppose the one that changed. It's not the change the most, but um, it's hard because then you come up with something like Midnight, which um, in a way that changed the least. But that's the one where we just all leapt into the dark. Not one of us knew if that would work. That's not answering your question because it's like. If you read Midnight on the page, does that work or not? Sky, Biff, saying it's very hard to lay out on the page. All this, the stage directions say it's simultaneous. Imagine reading that. It was very, very, that was a big leap to sort of say, does this work? And literally, we got to the read-through and I'm going, does this work? And the read-through was very odd. And I was going, oh, I'm not sure it works. Hooray, it worked. I thought it would, but um, that was a big leap in the dark. The biggest change, I don't know what the biggest change is because I felt them all change. It's... Um, there was nothing that revolutionised and became a very different thing. Um, let me have to think. Maybe as we talk through them, I'll, yeah. I'll, where are we now? Well, let's kind jump of... into Gridlock, which is uh, oh. a great, sprawling, wonderful... I love Gridlock. Um, interesting, one thing about Gridlock that struck me was because it starts with that um, Calypso Jones, who's the... Sally Calypso. Sally Calypso, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, which almost made me stop the video because it said Doctor Who's going to start now, but first, a traffic... A traffic announcement, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, suppose, oh, I don't want a traffic <laughs> announcement. And you almost stopped the video. We didn't know that. Um, and uh, and it's interesting because that was a sort of propaganda voice, which is what the Macra did in the Macra Terror. They had mm. a propaganda voice. Yes. But actually... In, the in Gridlock, the Macra aren't mm. these Orwellian propagandists. They are feral beasts. So yes. had, was that just a coincidence that you had that element of the Macra? It was, although, again, I have to say, I remember the Macra Terra. I can remember scenes from the Macra Terra. So it's kind of like part of my DNA. And, um, you see, that's why I'm stuck on the, on the, uh, the stories, the change question, because they always kept the change. That story was enormously different to begin with. It was all set in a, a tower above the sea on New Earth, where kind of like on the upper levels, you know, where the, where the Senate is, it was like the Mask of the Red Death up there. They'd sealed themselves off from the plague and were kind of having a Mask of Red Death as the macro gathered around them in the sea below. So you can see all the elements of the story were there, but it was all the other way around. The moment I sort of said, actually, Mask of the Red Death is best done in Mask of the Red Death. Why do we say everyone's dead up there? And then look at everyone who's was left behind. The difference is, I sort of go through, and this is true of my entire career, I go through this before I've got anything on paper. I think you're kind of looking for drafts where I'd written the Mask of the Red Death version of Gridlock. It wouldn't have been called Gridlock, it would have been called The Mask, or was that, you know, the New Earth Mask. And, um, but I've kind of gone through months of realising, no, that doesn't work. I think a lot of writers, and sometimes, I don't know, some of the lot of writers have to put that on paper to realise it doesn't work. I go through a process of going, no, that doesn't work, or I'm not interested in it, or there's a better way to tell, there's a more original way to tell this story. And you kind of swapped it around. You literally geographically went plague. Uh, the, the gridlock is a, is a really very strange story. It's kind of one of those, 
stories the Doctor does a lot of actually where something's broken a society's broken and it's kind of running on automatic um, it, it, it's like the, the tubular are doing that and the, and the empty child and, and you know something's gone wrong and there's a fault and in gridlock everything the problem happened 25 years ago and the whole society's running it's one of those it's one of those kind of dramas I like doing where you take all the drama out and then what's left is very interesting in the you know you could easily have had the evil motorway that could have all been planned Someone could be trapping them there. The macro could very easily be evil in that. It's, it's, it was half. It'd be half a day's rewrite to say, yes, we're fully conscious macro. We have designed the motorway system like this. Or you could have made the Senate evil. It could have said, aha, they condemned everyone to death while they've all gone to live on Mars. Unless you take all the drama out of it, you can actually the Senate were quite nice and tried to save everyone, and now they're dead. Everyone on the motorway. There, I remember starting out. There's a little line about pirates on the motorway. Piracy. I think that line's still in there. You don't see any pirates. I remember writing it thinking, I should put these pirates in somewhere. Thinking, no, but it's much more interesting if we don't see the pirates. Pirates will break into Brannigan's car, they'll swagger, they'll slit someone's throat, they'll steal the gold, they'll go, it doesn't take long to write. It's much more interesting not to write that. Take everything out of the macro, the macro aren't clever. It's like the person keeping it all running actually turns out to be the face of Bo, who's a good guy. It's a really, I do this a lot to stories because it's like, not always science fiction ones, but if you take out the drama, then what's left becomes very, very dramatic. I've just done this on a on this Channel 4 show I'm writing now. And it's great. It's, it's a very... Everyone loves the script, if I say so myself, because it's like... It, it's not science fiction, but it shows you a man, it shows you all sorts of problems he's got, and then kind of undramatizes them one by one, and he's much more interesting character because he's not going through these problems. And you're left with what's left then, which is... Anyway, so I quite like doing that in stories. It's a bit like... Um, there's an element that Love and Monsters as well. It's like, let's avoid the problem, let's avoid the confrontation, let's just keep going with Elton keep it bumbling along because it's more interesting to keep him in his bedroom mm. he hasn't inherited a castle at the end he hasn't um, um, he doesn't travel in time and space with the doctor at the end he's just sitting there with his paving stone and yet his life is a thousand times more dramatic than if he was Prince of Mars but I think. And, look, and, well, and I also think because I know your, your thoughts on, uh, on religion and all, all of that sort of thing and yet you, un you, 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 you allow the old rugged cross mm. which could for, for satirical intent could easily be seen yes. to be something that keeps people uh, absolutely not moving on or in denial and, and it sort of does it keeps people yes, in gridlock yes it does that but, but it's it keeps them going them, as well yes. and, and that's, an, that's a lovely um, thing Thank I think you. gridlock's a beautiful episode I love it I, yes and it's, it's one of those ones favorite, where you go yeah. I don't think we've been here before and I like about Doctor Who is where you can go yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. we've been here Yes, and again, I tell you what. In the sense in which it's new, it's that thing about the dog, the camera being right in the doctor's face. Now, the entire story springs from him telling a lie, or an omission. Simpler, we all do that. He just doesn't say that his planet's dead because he thinks this woman's going to stay long in the TARDIS. He thinks she's on a, a one-shot trip, and it's nice to lie sometimes. It's nice to just put Gallifrey into the present tense, and that springs his guilt throughout the entire thing. So you say there's no drama in the story. It's the opposite, but the drama is that tiny and that important. It's little, little things driving everyone. It's like, even the kidnappers. The kidnappers, Jean and, and, and Milo, steal Martha. And they should be pirates. They should be swaggering monsters. And they're lovely. Yeah. They're yeah. really, really <laughs> lovely. She's pregnant. They're sweet. They're all sorry, Martha. <laughs> they can have a nice time together where it smells of apple grass. It's, um, so, yes, and that religious thing is like, well, yes, you've just got to keep it's kind of, you know, you mustn't do that six-form writing. I know what you mean, the satirical version where 
they all sing the, the old rugged cross and the doctor does a speech about how you're just enslaved by your religion and, and it's, it's, um, it's easy. You know, if you can write something in a morning, you probably haven't written it well. If you have to keep writing it for weeks, then you've probably got a better version. And finding a version of that where the hymn fits in, again, that's why scripts change all the time. Because it's like, I didn't know it was going to do that until you get to it. And I remember, bizarrely, I was, why did I put the old rugged cross in? I think I'd been to a funeral. And I'd heard it, and I just thought, what a beautiful song. It's like, no wonder, no wonder these songs work. Yeah. No wonder hymns work, because they're absolutely beautiful. And, and I also, and, and to take a sort of slightly reactionary stance against it, I think it's a shame that only religious get those songs. I think it's a shame that you have to be a Christian to enjoy the old rugged cross, because it's beautiful. And the sense of community it suggests and engenders is lovely. And why do you get that and atheists don't have it? I'll have a bit of that, thank you very much. So that's partly also appropriating it. That's partly what happens with this, what I know people refer to as the godlike doctor and the Jesus doctor and stuff. It's not that. It's kind of taking that Hollywood imagery, not Bible imagery, but Hollywood imagery, and saying, actually, you don't own that, Christians, or anyone, or any religion. You don't own that sort of stuff, that exaltation, that goodness that can be in people, that, that holiness that can be in people, we can have that as well. Atheists can own that just as much as you do as well. So it's actually pulling that down and appropriating it for ourselves. To like me. it. Yes. Humph. But it's very rarely seen as that, isn't it? It's all seen as like, oh, Jesus, Dr. Blah, blah, blah. You sit there going, he's got the power of 15 satellites going through his head. I don't think Jesus ever had that. <laughs> what part of that is Christ-like? Well, okay. Well, I've been very nice to you, uh, and you mentioned that people have maybe criticised your Jesus Doctor. So, um, because we're on gridlock, because I want to throw in a fact that Bridget Turner, who plays one of these sisters, is the wife of Frank Cox, who directed the Sense Rights and the Edge yes. of Destruction. Yes, 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 so, yes, she is. So, yeah. Um, there's <laughs> also, um, they weren't sisters, they were married. Russell T. Davis, do you have a gay agenda? And if you do, is that a good thing? And if it is a good thing, why do a lot of people think it's a bad thing without us just saying, oh, but they're just bigots? I know, but do you really believe that question? It's <laughs> no, but I'm, try- I, I'm, I'm trying to be a good... I'm not an interviewer, really. I know. I'm an actor. <laughs> I know that's I- the- you've agreed with my answer before I've even said it. That It's like... Um, but, OK, well... It's not okay, an agenda well, well, to be gay and to have gays on screen. It's not an agenda. No, but okay, but I think you'll you'll know that I am a person of liberal sensibility, yes. and I'm not. I hate the Daily Mail. Um, I, I to say I don't have a problem is wrong because that makes it sound like I'm doing you a favour, and that's patronising. Yeah. But I did remember when Sky Silvestri said, "Oh, my relationship with Clips, she she went," and I went, "Oh." And then I went, hang on, isn't this a problem? If I'm going, oh, isn't that a problem with me? Mm. And then uh, that doesn't make me feel very comfortable because I'm a nice liberal man who's got lots of gay friends. So mm. why did I do Why that? did you then? I don't know. No, but you've thought about it for longer than I have. You must have a sinkling as to why you do it. You cut, but surely you're outside the program then and you're, you're sitting there thinking, Rusty Davis, gay writer, queer as folk. Oh, look what he just did. Which isn't what the real audience is doing. No, sure. Ten. You're just going, all oh, right. No, I'm less, I have less of a problem with you than I do with me for thinking. You know, right. The reason yes. it causes me disquiet is why did I, who prides himself on being uh, somebody who, who um, thinks that, that representation in drama is important yeah, 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 and yeah. challenging, because of, why, is I, why am I suddenly the person who's going, oh, does she have to be gay as well? You know. Oh, uh, right. As well as who? Well, as well as the, the, the Bridget Turner and Georgine Anderson. 
And Captain Jack. I know. 18 I, months ago. I know. I know. I know. I know. That's like, it's, it's horrible. Isn't it? I know. Shall I leave now? <laughs> you live here. Mm. No, ask Please me. stay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stay with your lovely but, but I wonder if it was. Mm. I wonder. Because it was something that the that Doctor Who forums, which I know is not the place where sanity resides. <laughs> um, but uh, I've sort of gone back to look at some of those because I didn't just want to ask you nice questions. Mm. And sometimes those forums would go, why don't they ask him this on Doctor Who Confidential? And you go, don't be stupid. <laughs> so, well, we'll leave that hanging then and perhaps I need to take a good, good long look at myself. Anyway. Well, no, or was it, were you acting like that because I'd done it for the 15th time? But I hadn't done it for the 15th. I probably done it the third time. Um, well, yeah, and you don't question every time there's death. a married couple. No, uh, you, exactly. no, you don't say a married couple isn't, That's part of the isn't problem. saying we are heterosexual. It, it is That's part of the problem because the response to that would be, well, why did they say they're married? Mm. Uh, you know, why did they say they're lesbian? Which they don't, actually, but someone else brings it up. I love the fact that the person who brings it up is a cat married to a human. He <laughs> 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 was talking as though there were no problems there whatsoever. Those claws. Um, so... It's, 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 you know, it's, it's always, it's, it's said, there is a genuine bump in history here that, that the, these sort of 50 years we're living through, this will be the case. That, um, and that actually, I think a lot of straight people don't realise this, that all characters are presumed to be straight unless you say so. They simply are, or unless a man flounces in the skirt, then you don't need, you know, unless Miss Humphreys walks through, then you don't need to say something. But otherwise, I don't think people realise that. that it's no. literally an absolute assumption. And I do it, that's not just straight people. Everyone does it. It's like, you know, it's, 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 you know, part of it. Maybe it's a visibility thing. Maybe it's a representation thing. But actually, you kind of forget, because we live in a world now in which there are quite a few gay characters on TV. Not that many, not as many as you think, but it's not bad. You kind of forget the perspective, because you were living through these ten years where there might be a good few gay characters everywhere. You forget all the vast, echoing, empty cathedrals that have nothing of this in it, that, that, that if you look in the Bible, there's nothing there. If you look at Dickens, there's nothing there. Jane Austen, if we look at Hollywood, if you look at Pixar films, look at Disney, if you look at Star Trek, if you look at Marvel comic books, you know, yes, you can come up with one or two little examples, maybe in a Star Trek spin-off novel, that have come up with a gay character. The fact that you were scrabbling in the dirt for radishes means that actually you're failing, that you're not, that the, 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 the absence is vast. You simply don't realise that if you're straight, I think. No. Because you have one or two gay people cropping up and it feels like there's a little buzzing of flies around your head. It feels like there's a swarm. Like a fly. <laughs> a fly is annoying when there's just one fly in the room. It's like it drives you mad. And uh, that's all it's doing. The fact that there's just one. Yeah. And you have to look at the absence. And if you're a 10-year-old child, a gay child, and some children can know that they're gay at 10 years old, the absence the absence all you have in the entire works of Walt Disney are that Ken doll in Toy Story 3 that's simply not good enough it is literally you, of course the, the visibility thing is still true of course the fight is still there because there are lonely children out there and they have nothing to turn to they're not watching shows at 9 o'clock actually if they're 10 years old they are not watching it and every piece of literature they do of course the brilliant people like you know Jacqueline Wilson and Judy Bloom fighting that but, you know, it's like even in the vast cathedrals of Harry Potter, Dumbledore had to be gay off stage. And I love J.K. Rowling for doing that. I think it's a brilliant thing. If only he could have loved a man and said, I loved Grimwald or whoever it was, um, in the pages book, just once in one line. And, and what's more, no, I think J.K. Rowling learns in front of us and is brilliant. I bet she'll do that in her, in her next children's book. 
Uh, but but all I'm talking about is the absence. The, sh the absence is massive. And people complain when two little flies pop up and buzz around their heads and annoy them. It's like, actually, it is your problem. It's like, it's kind of time to, it's a very sort of liberal thinking at the moment, sort of saying, you can't blame other people and say, it's your problem. You have to look, you know, this isn't a satisfactory answer. What a load of rubbish. Yes, it's someone else's problem. It is, and I will make it their problem again and again and again. And the more you do that, the problem will go away in the end. Because it'll just normalise. That's why we're kind of looking like 50, 60 years of this, they'll be laughing in 2050 when they're not frying underneath a merciless sun. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, was, I was talking to my girlfriend about it last night. Uh, She's a right homophobe, that one. Yeah, I tell yeah. you now. She punched <laughs> me, punched me. They're all like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she, um, we were talking about how far we've, you know, it was East, it's EastBenders, you know, when Colin and Harry yes. kissed. Yes, yes, yes. National newspaper mm, mm, mm. put that on its front cover. Yeah. In my lifetime, when I was a teenager. Yes. And I was watching, uh, so the first of this year's Glee the other day. And Glee is what it is, but they're a great big song. Kurt and Blaine kiss the end of it. That's still radical. It's still radical. It's still exceptional. It's still a very brave thing to do. And I applaud them. Oh, another brave thing to do is to get a sexy American actor from Desperate Housewives all the way over to Cardiff to be a darling in my Ryan Carnes. Turn him into a pig. <laughs> and do you know what? I never met him. Oh, I never, in fact, I only ever saw him as a bit. Only did that first scene, didn't he, as Ryan Carnes? He was beautiful, that boy. I loved it, apparently. Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield. Yeah. Like ten lines. Oh my god! Do you know at the time, literally, I'm not kidding. This isn't hindsight. Everyone came off set going, "Oh my god, that boy is brilliant." Everyone. David Tennant was like, going, "Who's that Andrew boy? Where did it?" Freeman was like, going, "He's good, isn't he?" Even then, a star. Brilliant. It's so little to do with Frank, but that scene where he's crying. Brilliant. He fought the Daleks. Spider Man he, fought the Daleks. We did. did a good thing there. Yeah, he <laughs> did. And you, you had uh, the. Front cover of the Radio Times that gave away the episode ending. That must. That was trouble. my decision. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Oh, I didn't. Well, a lot of people are involved in a decision like that. I'm aggrandizing myself there slightly, but I was fine with it. Absolutely fine. Lovely. So that brings in more viewers. If you get a Radio Times cover, you don't turn that down. Do you know what my favourite bit of that whole story is? What? It's the bit where the Daleks are having a conflab, and one looks behind. He looks it. round, isn't that brilliant? <laughs> isn't that brilliant? We love that. I think that that wasn't in the script. That was just. They have a little gossip, don't they? Yeah. Well, no, they're talking about the power structure. They're there. talking about Dalek, yeah. It's love. Do you know the one thing I miss writing for Daleks? Dalek dialogue. I loved writing that stuff. I always loved writing the dialogue. Daleks. You know, all, all those years of Eric Sauer telling you how bad they were to write for? They're glorious to write for. Love them. Everything a Dalek says is so calm. It doesn't waste a single word. Social interaction will cease. <laughs> I love them saying that. Things like that. It's just brilliant. <laughs> I loved it. Well, and I've, uh, in fact, I think Mick Pegg said it was his idea to look around. Yes, yes, yeah, I bet it was. So but James Strong would have loved that as well. So he's, he's, he's actually done Daleks in Manhattan before. He's starting a leap into, oh God, did the Doctor's daughter next? I think it yes, because Freeman's on board and yeah, doesn't go home and gets taken to, what's the name of that planet? Messaline. Messaline. Yeah, the, do the Doctor's daughter. Well, was the Doctor's thought. Look daughter. what we created there. Yes, indeed. A marriage. The Doctor's daughter. It's not funny. Uh, played by the Doctor's daughter, uh, and this beguiling idea of a of a generations long war. That's the flourish, isn't it? Generations long war. Yes. How long did it lasted? Yes, 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 week, yes. Whatever, it was know. hard. That yes, yes. It was uh, yes. That was it was my idea. That and I'm not sure. I'm sure Stephen never quite bought it. Stephen Green on. Um, yeah, I love that. I love the fact it only lasted a week because people sort of say, "Well, how come that man is old?" It's like 
you know, there's that old general. How yeah, come he's old? We could have spelled that out a bit further because, I mean, Jenny doesn't step from the, the as generator as, yeah. as a baby. So obviously they're creating an officer class. So old people come out. But we could have spelled that out a little bit more. I love that story. All coming to a climax in Plantasia in Swansea because we were stuck for an ending. It was all like factories and we've shot in every factory and it was Phil who sort of said, can we go to like one of those greenhouse conservatory things, Plantasia? <laughs> and add pipes and a, a bit of a matte painting to make it look like the inside I don't know, a forest inside a spaceship and it was brilliant really clever so what had led you to Stephen Greenhorn to, 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 to um, Julie knew him no I loved that series he did I watched Glasgow Kiss it is a series uh, about a, was it called Glasgow Kiss yes about a widower um, which was just lovely just lovely writing um, so that's uh, yes, and there's a man who wasn't particularly a fan, I don't think. Um, I think he knew his Doctor Who enough, but and I think it's... Yes, he just loved it. Just delighted. Really nice man. Lovely man. I am... I'm hoping I'm going to... Just bear in mind, this is I've been up since six o'clock in the morning and I was watching Enemy of the World in the Moment of Fear last night. I know. So I'm very tired. <laughs> um, and the, the Lazarus Experiment... Yes! Was, uh, another sort of... No, hold on, the Doctor's Daughter, we were in the wrong series. I've gone the wrong season, haven't I? Yes, we had three on boards, but she'd gone away. She went with Donna to do that. Yeah, I told you I was tired. You can edit that. I went with you. That's marvellous. Do you know what? I didn't bother editing it in the end. I I don't think I have anything to prove. Uh, As Russell said, it was marvellous. So, um, we, we... I'll tell you what. What we did was we talked about... Uh, the Doctor's Daughter in a timey-wimey sort of way which forgives anything that doesn't make sense and is out of order <laughs> um, apologies for that we're back on track with the next one and we don't miss anything out I promise thanks to Russell um, so there'll be more of those but this one was released because in the whole uh, Who's Round oeuvre uh, this is the position chronologically where I spoke to him and afterwards I chatted on the phone to somebody who was a an actor in the Sylvester McCoy era, but who has plenty of other stories to tell. So there's a sneak preview of that coming up. But if you could donate to Russell's charity, which is the Terence Higgins Trust, who sent their thanks to Russell after a previous instalment because they got a, a spike in donations. So well done and thank you for acquiescing to what is only a, a request from us. But because this is a multi-episode, you get multi-the entertainment, so if you could donate again, that would be very much appreciated. It's the Terence Higgins Trust, www.tht.org.uk. Why am I asking for a charitable donation? Because the interviewers uh, are interviewed for free, I do not get paid, and we do not charge you for this. So, in the interests of all that, if you could do that, it helps the world go around in a nice direction. Um, please keep listening, and thanks for doing so, so far. This is Toby Edok. Goodbye. And there were, even the, the tiny parts were being played by real names. John Nathan Taylor, who was the producer of the show, of course, was a great man for getting people that he liked or knew off of the stage or the television. So it was my lucky day when I walked in and um, John Nathan Taylor said, Oh, I know you. Um, you'll do. Hello, my name is David Troughton. Well, I'm Kevin McNally. Well, um, I'm Edward D'Souza. Uh, I'm Linda Bellingham. My name is Saran Jones. My name is Geoffrey Bailden. Well, I'm Warris Hussain, and I was the very first director of the very first four episodes 
of uh, Doctor Who. Hello, I'm Toby Haydoke, and I interviewed all of those people and more in an attempt to get a first-hand anecdote from every Doctor Who story. Now, not all the names will be familiar to you. Hello, I'm Sue Upton. I worked on about 34, 35 episodes of Doctor Who. My name is Roger Bunce and I'm a BBC cameraman for many, many years and worked on many, many Doctor Whos. Yes, well, hello. My name is Margot Hayhoe and I was one of the few people, I think, who had worked with all five of the first Doctors. That said, you will have heard of some of them. I'm Matthew Waterhouse. Hello, I'm Mark Gatiss. Hello, I am Russell T. Davis, and I'm actually sitting here in Toby Towers. <laughs> hey, Doug Towers. Hello. Hello, why are you doing this? We've been gossiping for hours before we started. <laughs> There's hours of stuff we can't ever tell you. And so we uncover new facts about Doctor Who. Uh, when you watch Megalos, you may not realise, and it's a good pub quiz question, uh, I am also the voice of the cactus. But everyone is a character with so many stories to tell outside of the programme. It's basically a 50-year oral history of the entertainment industry. Yes, I, I, don't, I don't do the internet at all. I'm told that if you, if you Google me, you can see various things that I've done. Though I gather my birth date is wrong, but my French agent telephoned me in a panic saying, they've got your birth date wrong. And I said, oh, really? Have they made me older or younger? And she said, older? We have to do something. I said, no, no, leave it. Leave it. I shall have access to senior parts. And it was on my birthday, so I was drunk in my back garden. And a friend of mine said to me, don't you have an interview today? And I was unshaven and really at the wrong end of a bottle of vodka. And I did this audition and went home and completely forgot about it. And then about... A week later, my agent phoned me and said, um, they want you to do that pirate film. The director's going to meet you tomorrow. And I honestly said to her, what pirate film? And I like to think that we get a snapshot of a person, the sort of things you won't find in magazine articles or DVD extras. I was an only child, and um, only children spend to, tend to spend a little more time with adults and a little more time on their own. And I was arrested at the hotel for draft dodging. I was court-martialed. So I was immediately taken from the courthouse straight to, my, to the barracks in Marseille and became a French soldier without a word of French. Ah, this um, time last year I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was a bit of a shocker, came out of the blue. And so it has been a, a tough year. It does exactly what it says on the tin, so long as the tin says... Toby Haydock interviews people about Doctor Who and stuff. Oh, did I mention? It's free. Toby Haydock's Who's Round. From Big Finish.